You speak of power like you know what it is. You speak about power like you know what it is. You speak to power like you've witnessed what it is. Brother, please. Brother, freeze. Brother, breathe. Welcome to Substance, a new podcast from Collectors, the world's first digital museum of private collections. My name is Jessica Ralkan. In this podcast, we will be presenting bold conversations with a diverse group of artists, activists, and collectives making a substantial change in the world today. Substance is one of the ways Collectors is activating its initiative titled Substance 100, a new list focused on the power of change rather than power itself. We believe the art world is capable of leading activists now and for generations to come. By engaging a community of activists from the art world and beyond, Substance 100 raises the question, what is the purpose of art in the 21st century? Substance 100 was announced to the public in April 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Two months later, and now in the middle of one of the largest global social movements that the world has ever seen, we can't be more proud of our initiative which celebrates those who are not afraid to challenge pre-existing models and enact social, environmental, and political change for a more positive reality. As of early July 2020, we're still experiencing the effects of COVID-19. People in the U.S. are outraged by the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Elijah McLean due to police brutality and systemic racism. Cries for erasing racism from society and the system have taken the shape of protests in almost every town in the U.S. Police departments have reacted, as expected, with excessive force and brutality which have fanned the flames of the protests, causing them to spread like wildfire. The protests have led to demands to disarm, defund, and abolish police departments as we know them. One thing is for sure. The police departments in the U.S. are broken. Today our guest is someone who is at the front line of countering state and police violence. He is a London-based Israeli architect who was recently banned from entering the United States. He came to prominence through detailed digital reenactments of the incidents regarding human rights abuses and disputed assassinations. A.L. Wiseman is the founder of the Turner Prize nominated research collective, Forensic Architecture. Forensic Architecture is known for its use of architectural, spatial, and technological analyses to uncover violence. Wiseman's work with Forensic Architecture includes an investigation into a CIA drone strike in Pakistan that was presented in the United Nations General Assembly. An analysis of the Chicago police killing of a barber that led to an investigation by the mayor in the Chicago Police Department, and an inquiry into the Israeli bombing of Rafah that informed the International Criminal Court's recent decision to open an investigation into the possibility of Israeli war crimes in Palestine. Forensic architecture had a prominent role on the resignation of Warren Canders from the Whitney Museum Board with their project Triple Chaser, an investigation into the uses of tear gas and rubber bullets manufactured by Safari Land Group 
which is owned by Pandurs. Wiseman's work not only documents and informs global systemic violence, but it's also able to enact social and political change by forcing the establishment to change. Wiseman's work is truly the answer we pose to the question with Substance 100. What is the purpose of art in the 21st century? Evermore Alcon speaks with A.L. Wiseman via phone due to the ongoing pandemic from London. Hi, A.L. It is an honor to have you with us. Um, I want to start with your first major U.S. exhibition that opened in February 2020 at the uh, Museum of Art and Design in Miami. A day before you were scheduled to fly from the UK to attend the exhibition, your wife, Ines Weisman, who traveled separately from you uh, with your two children, was stopped, separated from the children, and interrogated for two and a half hours at the airport. The day after, you were informed that your US visa was revoked, which obviously prevented you from being present at the exhibition. In a statement afterwards, you said, I'm going to go ahead and read this part. Um, These works seek to demonstrate that we can invert the forensic gaze and turn it against the actors, police, militaries, secret services, border agencies that usually seek to monopolize information. But in employing the counter forensic gaze, one is also exposed to higher level monitoring by the very state agencies investigated. I have so much respect for the absolute fearless work you do with uh, forensic architecture. It is, in a way, a testament to the power of art and its potential to emancipate the people. What is the main motivation for you and your team in continuing this recently turned dangerous work? It is good that you started with the state, because that statement exposed us to a new kind of violence that we identify, which is both digital and physical, and that operate the combination of them, some people that attract in that way, much less privileged than us, could be targeted, could be assassinated with drones, sometimes could simply be denied entry to places. I don't feel myself one of those victims. I feel myself much more privileged than that. But in a sense, we need to identify the different forms that violence is taking towards the future. The intersection of an algorithm and the border are extremely interesting for us. And this is why we have begun an entire new field of investigation that is concerned precisely with that and how this relates to art and aesthetics. But I'd like to explain to you how we use the term aesthetics. For us, aesthetics is a matter of perception, detection and perception. If an algorithm identifies my my movements, my health condition, the contents of my conversation, the algorithm is aestheticized to me. That field of aesthetics is a wide field. It's not only about judgment and interpretation. It is about the way in which material organizations, like buildings, like concrete that is broken by a bomb or by sniper fire, the way in which plants in the forest register genocide that happened in that place decades earlier, the way in which images register, sound register, code register. We, we exist in a very multipolar, polyperspectival aesthetic field, and we inhabit it 
We're not only reflecting upon it. We're not only critiquing it. We swim in it. We exist in it. And we need to be able to understand the way in which aesthetic power operates today, the way in which power today has taken on an aesthetic force, right? And we have moved into the field of politics, like artists, creatives, critical scholars. But the field of politics has colonized aesthetics. And the minute that they have taken over aesthetics, we have, they enter into our field. So in a sense, we have a few tricks. We have our creativity. We have our political commitment, solidarity and motivation. And we are able to inhabit the aesthetic field perhaps with less resources, with less senses, but with much more creativity than power. And this is why we finally meet a state agent, uh, a police watchdog, the Metropolitan Police now. We've exposed the way in which the killing of Mark Duggan has been manipulated by that. We are able to prove our case much better than the police. The thing is that they will try to disqualify, they will try to silence us, It's about the field of appearances that they will not allow us in. They would say, you're politically biased, you're an artist, your words do not qualify as evidence. But we need to understand that politics has entered the field of aesthetics. Politics started to operate with much more sophisticated field of detection, with videos, etc. So welcome to our field, and here we can find a way to answer with our counter moves. I want to know your thoughts about the current situation and the brutal racial oppression we are witnessing as a society. My thoughts is that this spark that started the protest right now in the U.S., but to tell you the truth, we, we are deep in work and in solidarity with social movement in Chile, in Hong Kong, since a year already. This is kind of like the year of revolutions, or not 2020, already 2019 has began with it. The question for us is obviously of solidarity and of empowerment, but it's also an epistemological question. That is to say, how to take those sparks, those split-second moments. We know with the murder of George Floyd, it's not a split second. We're talking about 80 seconds. But particularly in relation to police violence cases in London, on the Mark Duggan case, it was a split-second decision. In Chicago, the superintendent, it was a split-second decision. In Israel, when the Israeli police murdered a Bedouin man, realized there he was not a terrorist, but still stitched up a whole story that he was a terrorist and said it was a split-second decision. In eastern Turkey, the Turkish police kills a Kurdish human rights lawyer, split-second decision, Tahi Elchi. So we have those split-second decisions. They're like sparks in the dark. But out of each one, you need to know how to mobilize your tools, not only to see into the split-second, not only to go into the molecular level of time, but from those instances, these fragments of time, those dust of temporal components the irreducible dimension of perceptual time open up into a picture that would show you the structural forces, the slow violence, the way in which generations of settler colonial policies in Palestine, of racial segregation and slavery in the U.S. How do you see in a molecular level of time deep history, 
And this is a question that I think, again, art has been extremely successful in doing because it is through the pain of an individual even when you look at just the history of Jesus paintings from the Middle Ages to Christophilly let's say but in each period the suffering the pain is described as a kind of a, a universal so taking from a single wound up to structural conditions and I don't mean it at all in a religious sense I mean that art and aesthetic sensibilities can become relevant because it is within the split second, within this unique molecular incident that is irreducible, that we find a way to map out and chart the uh, areas in which we are. You recently shared your investigation into the killing of Mark Duggan at the hands of the British police. Uh, Mark Duggan's killing incited massive protests in London in 2011. Do you think it is possible to create a collaborative model in the U.S. that a similar type of investigative research is widely available for police killings and brutality that happened in the past and could happen in the future? Each one of the cases does two things. Look, our resources are limited. We're a group of 20 filmmakers, lawyers, architects, artists, environmental scientists, you know, an archaeologist, a journalist. But we're a small team. We take exemplary cases, and our aim is always two. One, to serve the stakeholders. In the Mark Duggan case, it was particularly the mother, but the family of Mark Duggan that commissioned us through their lawyers. So they are our primary stakeholder. We do the work for them out of respect for decade-long way in which the, the state completely neglected and did not respect them as people and their demand for justice and accountability. But secondly, every case also shows an opportunity. It's a window towards how things could be done. A lot of our cases spend a lot of time showing how we do what we do. That is to say, how this could be replicated as a model. There's nothing here that is science fiction. It's complicated, but, you know, it is replicable. We are now establishing groups in Hong Kong. Well, I was brought to Hong Kong when the, when the protests began in last summer, a year ago. About five, six different groups connected to the social movement and the protest contacted us, forensic architecture, asked us to come to investigate. I traveled there just before COVID. I think I was there in December. I saw the eagerness. I saw the commitment. I saw the ability there. And I said, you don't need us. We would support you with advice, but you would make your own investigation. You would investigate your own government. And that would be a power to demonstrate that the citizens are not simply governed, but can speak back through the tools and techniques. And indeed, we based it around the studio in an architectural faculty with Amy Chong, who's uh, an artist there. And we have built a collective that is now produced extremely important evidence for the abolition of tear gas as a weapon. And this is a model we are increasingly operating with. Anyone that comes to us and say, we want to learn to do how you do or be supported, we will help them establish in France. We established a group around race-based violence. The groups in Turkey and also I've myself traveled to Diyarbakir to discuss with and to share with some people. There is a group in Turkey called Forensic Architecture run by Pelintan, mm. and they're doing similar work. But we don't need to keep anything 
proprietorial. Exactly. In fact, everything that we know how to do, we don't need to do. We only take cases we don't know how to do. Mark Duggan was a very interesting case. For a year, we investigated a second, one second, between when Mark Duggan left the cab and when he was shot, without videos. Yeah. So everybody say, oh, you need videos, it's all about video. There was no one video, no one video. There were 11 testimonies, and we looked at them. There were 500 pages of testimonies that we broke down to minutia of time, that we synchronized, that we look, look at them together. It's not video. It's not the, even that there is a technique. It's just the eagerness and commitment to, to investigate. The aesthetic field has in it the sensibility, the intelligence in the field of art and architecture. There is enough intelligence and commitment to be able to do things differently, to investigate differently. We're not replicating police tactics. We're not even interested in how the police done their investigation. We do them completely differently. And now police are coming to us, teach us, teach us. We don't. We don't deal with them. They don't enter our office because we would never work for state agencies. Conversation around reforming of police departments has been reignited since George Floyd's murder. The previous wave saw the wider implementation of police body cameras, which were supposed to provide an objective truth to the public about police brutality and potentially reduce it. From your investigations, namely the dash cam video provided by Chicago Police Department in the case of Harriet Augustus, we see that video recordings provided by officials can also be tampered with. The police department across the U.S. converted a control mechanism that was implemented to benefit the public to something that is being used by the police to justify brutality. I believe that with the integration of blockchain technology and strict measures, it is possible to create transparency and accountability. What do you think is a way to achieve true transparency between the police and the public? There is nothing like true transparency. There's only struggle. I can only promise you struggle and more struggle and more struggle. There's no system that will solve it all. Of course, body cam provide information, but open the way to new kinds of manipulation. When I showed the mother and aunt of Mark Duggan, the Harith Augustus investigation, they said something very important. They said body cams are directed in the wrong way because the body cam are filming, not the policeman, yeah. filming what is called the suspect. In fact, what we need is body cam on the police. And of course, this is the activist cameras, are all sort of program called Shooting Back. And today we are witnessing new calls for the rebuilding again of the Black Panthers as community force that would need to be there and hold the police to account. There is no way that policing, as we conceptualize it today, is the right answer and need to be supported with anything. Policing has to change the idea of safety and security of vulnerable people in our communities need to be addressed completely differently. And until that point, we need force to protect us from the police. And I completely understand that we need people following police with cameras, recording what they do, standing there, not allowing them to abuse their power. That, by the way, was the, the, the first foundational principles 
of the Black Panthers, protecting communities from the police. We will release something maybe Friday, maybe Monday. I don't know if we're too much fast or not, mm -hmm. but um, we will release something, I hope. Uh, the first kind of like uh, attempt into that field, but we are, we are working on other projects of police violence, not only in the U.S., worldwide, and we will continue to do that under our split-second methodology. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for taking the time. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye. Something wrong, officer? Yeah. Got a tail light out. Where? Right there. You know, one day honest citizens are going to stand up to you crooked cops. They are? Oh, no. Have, have they set a date?